Well, after a pause of several Sundays, today we return to our study of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. So glad to be back in that study. We find ourselves at uh, an extraordinary passage of scripture, John chapter 17, John chapter 17. I think one of the most dramatic moments in Israel's history has to be something that occurred only once a year. On the annual Day of Atonement, here's what would happen. On that special day, the high priest would pull back that great veil or curtain that separated the rest of the tabernacle or later the temple from that small uh, cube-shaped windowless room called the Holy of Holies. That separating veil was a huge heavy drape made of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. It was embroidered with gold cherubim angels. Before the high priest pulled that veil back, though, and entered that room, the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, there was something he had to first do. He had to first wash himself, and then he had to also put on special clothing. But with that ritual completed, he would then pull that veil back and he would enter that holy place. It was the place of God's presence in the form of the Shekinah glory rested above the the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory hovering there, resting upon the mercy seat, that lid of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. No one else was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies like that. Only the high priest. And only once a year on that day, the Day of Atonement. Once inside that small room, the priest would burn incense and then he would take the blood of a sacrificial animal and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of the ark. By doing so, he was first atoning for his own sin and then atoning for the sins of the people, the nation. Then with those tasks completed, the high priest would not linger at all. He would do all this as quickly as possible and then he would withdraw. Well, as I noted, this was a unique place. The Holy of Holies represented God's presence. It represented his dwelling place. In that sense, it represented heaven and the throne of God. Therefore, wouldn't you love to have been able to peek in there at some point? Wouldn't you love to just pull it back a little bit and peer into this place where God dwelled, see the Shekinah glory? Let me press on that idea even further. I mean, God does dwell in heaven, as Scripture teaches. He's omnipresent, but this is his dwelling place in the real Holy of Holies. And he dwells there as the triune God. That was true in all eternity past, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. One God existing in three persons is true today. And within that heavenly dwelling... The members of the Godhead have enjoyed perfect love between one another, perfect intimacy, even even perfect communication with one another. 
So let me go back to that idea of peering into something special. Wouldn't you love to peer into that? Wouldn't you love to listen in to the sharing that goes on between one member of the Godhead with another? Well, I say all that because in a sense, that's what we're going to do now, starting this morning. We're going to peer into the Holy of Holies, as it were. We're going to listen in to one member of the Godhead, the Son, in communication with another member, the Father, and we can do that because of what we find in John chapter 17, this prayer that Jesus prayed. This lengthy prayer is the real Lord's Prayer. probably heard commentators say that. What is normally called the Lord's Prayer, what we find in Matthew and Luke, that really ought to be labeled the disciples' prayer because it was Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. But here... This is his own personal prayer to the Father. So as we read it and as we study it, let's just keep in mind that we are listening in. Listening in to a very unique and profound communication, conversation. I call this prayer, this conversation unique, not just because Jesus is the one who prayed it in this moment. Jesus was known for prayer. We learn from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that he prayed often. It's just that we don't have the content of all of his prayers, and many of them were brief. In the Gospel of John, this is the third prayer we've come to. There was one back in John chapter 11. He voiced a brief prayer at the tomb of Lazarus. Then in John chapter 12, he voiced a brief prayer prayer when he was being approached by some Greeks. But this one, John 17, it's the longest one of Jesus' prayers recorded in Scripture. And it is a profound prayer because we find here the very priorities of the heart of Jesus. Now, since we're parachuting back into the Gospel of John after being gone for a while from our study of it, let's briefly just review where we are. I won't go all the way back to the beginning, but just the last few chapters, Jesus and his disciples had been meeting together in a room in Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. And there in that room, they partook of their last Passover meal together. It was also during their time together in that room that Jesus performed that extraordinary act of of washing the feet of the disciples, an act that, that visually portrayed what was coming, the cleansing that was coming in the cross. It also certainly was an example of true humble service. It was that night in the room that Jesus revealed to the disciples that Judas was going to betray him. He revealed that night that Peter would deny him. He revealed something he had been telling them along the way, but he once again revealed to them that night that he was going to leave them by way of death. The disciples were shocked. They were understandably disheartened by all that Jesus said. So the Lord sought to console them. He sought to bring comfort to their hearts. If you look back at chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, you find a good example of that. It reads in John 14, 1 and 2, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. 
If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Very encouraging. The Lord further encouraged his followers with this promise that there was one coming after Jesus departed, the one he called the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 14, verse 26, for example. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In his instruction to them, Jesus also at one point, use the imagery of a vine and some branches just to confirm their relationship to him, that they had a genuine relationship to him. Chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Jesus also encouraged them with the fact that even though they were going to be disheartened for a while, that sadness was going to only be temporary. Because he promised them that he would rejoin them. Of course, a reference to his resurrection and then the coming of the Spirit even. Well, he concluded all his instructions in that final sermon to the disciples with a reminder that they were going to experience tribulation in this world. Look back at the last verse of chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now at some point that night, during all that instruction, Jesus and the disciples did leave that upper room. All the instruction didn't take place there. They left the upper room and began walking through the city on their way to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. If you look back at chapter 14, verse 31, you get a pretty good clear that, uh, a clue that that happened. 1431 says at the end of it, get up, let's go from here. So they left the room and they would have, going through the city streets, they would have passed the temple on the way. Perhaps that's why Jesus used that imagery of the vine and the branches because one of the notable features on the temple was a large decorative vine that was affixed above the entryway. It was a gigantic piece of art, really, that included gold and jewels and huge clusters of grapes. Maybe the sight of that prompted Jesus to use the vine and the branches imagery as they walked by. We don't know. In any case, at some point, they would have finally come to the end of the city streets of Jerusalem. They would have to leave the city by descending the steep eastern slopes of the city and then cross a brook at the bottom of a valley there called the Kidron Valley, and then ascend up the slopes on the other side, the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, because that's where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. It seems likely that with all the formal instruction over, that they were now at that Kidron Valley, maybe even in it, when Jesus voiced this prayer in John chapter 17. Now, personally, I tend to imagine uh, Jesus praying this prayer as he stood on the bank, the edge of that little brook, just before taking the, the steps to the other side to ascend the slopes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Some form of image like that does fit with what we find in the next chapter. If you look ahead to chapter 18, verse 1, this explains what happened 
as soon as Jesus concluded his prayer. Chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, meaning the prayer, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, that's over the brook, where there was a garden, once he got up to the other side there, in which he entered it with his disciples. Well, what was waiting for Jesus in that garden? Well, we know the answer to that. The greatest trial of his earthly life and ministry. It was in the garden. He was going to be arrested and then taken to an unjust trial where he'd be sentenced to death by crucifixion. That's what he knows is coming. So amazingly, what did Jesus do knowing what was coming? He stopped and he prayed. Wish we were like that. I've even said this sometimes after trying everything I know to do about some situation. I've even thought, maybe even in the past, I've even said, well, I guess all I can do now is pray. You ever, you ever heard that? What a terrible thing. This wasn't because it was all he could do now. He strategically chose to pray. This is God in human flesh. This is the one who was going to return to the Father via that shameful and painful, disgraceful, yet substitutionary death for sinners on the cross. This one prayed. This is the one who was part of that eternal Godhead, the one who knew the very secret eternal will of God because he was party to the decrees of God before the foundation of the world. This is the one who prayed. Now, as one writer said, you might expect the words of this prayer, since it's inter-Trinitarian prayer, to be very lofty, very mysterious, very hard for us to even wrap our minds around, but that's not what we find here. We find his prayer very simple. We find it straightforward. His wording is clear. Pastor MacArthur puts it this way, its words are plain yet majestic, simple yet mysterious. They plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the inter-Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son, and their scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history from election to glorification, including the themes of regeneration, revelation, illumination, sanctification, and preservation. The veil is drawn back, and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies to the very throne of God. I'm excited to be at this prayer. The entire prayer, which takes up the chapter, can be divided into three sections. That's kind of the common way to do it. An outline that's something like this for the whole prayer. First five verses, verses one to five, we find Jesus' prayer for himself, the Son's prayer for himself. Verses one to five. Verses six to 19, we find the Son's prayer for his current disciples, the ones that were with him. Verses 6 to 19. And then in verses 20 to 26, we find the Son's prayer for his future disciples. Us. All believers who would come to him in the centuries to come. In other words, the church. Verses 20 to 26. Well, it'll take us a while to go through this prayer, so you'll hear that overall outline more than once, I'm sure. Just keep this in mind as we study it. 
Jesus prayed this aloud. In other words, the disciples all heard as they stood there with him when he stopped. They all heard the content of this prayer, which, of course, is how the apostle John, who was there with the Spirit's help, later was able to record it for us. Now, today, we're only going to begin looking at the first section. And it'll take us a couple of weeks to do just those first five verses. So since it is the beginning, we will go a bit slower than we will later in the chapter. But let's look at the son's prayer for himself. The son's prayer for himself. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things. Now these things, that little phrase, refers to all the instruction that precedes this. So that confirms that this prayer is connected to all that instruction. I mean, for the disciples, they've been listening to Jesus all along the way, in the room, in the streets, and as far as they were concerned, Jesus was still speaking. It might have taken them a moment even to realize, no, it's not so much instruction as prayer, certainly as they saw what he did. It tells us there in verse 1, Jesus began his prayer by looking up. It says he spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. That was a familiar posture to the Jews when it came to prayer. You'll find an example of that in the Psalms, Psalm 123, verse 1. Psalm 123, verse 1, the psalmist writes, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now Jesus didn't always pray this way, but there are other times he did it. For example, in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, that's Mark's account of that feeding of the large crowd with just a, a little bit of bread and two fish. It says in Mark 6, 41, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. That little prayer that I mentioned that we find back in chapter 11 of John, the prayer at the tomb of Lazarus. It says there that Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So again, Jesus, others, sometimes prayed in this manner. It was a way to acknowledge God's throne in heaven. It was a way of showing respect and reverence to God. But also notice how Jesus addressed God. Verse 1, it says, he said, Father. That was not typical when it came to the Jews of Jesus' day. To refer to God that way, they had developed over a time a very, a very remote view of God. So by addressing God as Father, Jesus is certainly acknowledging his submission to the Heavenly Father. He's acknowledging his dependence on him, yet this is also acknowledging the intimate fellowship that Jesus enjoyed as a member of the Godhead. And one more thing, this as well underscored Jesus' equality with God as the Son. Now that, more than anything else, is what angered the Jewish leaders of of Jesus' day when they heard him refer to to God as Father. Listen to what we saw back in John chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, I mean, that was bad enough, but what pushed him over the edge was this, but also was calling God his own Father, 
making himself, they said, equal with God. They got it. The implications of calling God Father, that there's intimacy and equality. One more thing that's very doctrinally important in Jesus addressing God this way. It's mysterious to us. I mean, on one hand, he was making himself equal with God, yes. But on the other hand, he was demonstrating his distinctness from the Father. He was clearly not praying to himself. I mean, it is God praying to God, but not Jesus praying to himself. Because in addressing the Father, Jesus was confirming that he is a distinct member of the Godhead. So yes, as mysterious as this is to our minds, granted, it is the biblical view of God. That's why we sang about it earlier in one of the songs. God exists as one God, but in three distinct persons. And we leave that where it is, the way Scripture teaches us, because it's true. So back to our text. Here Jesus was, he stopped while looking up to heaven and addressing God as his own Father. Jesus goes on to give the reason why there is this long, profound prayer at this moment. Verse 1, the hour has come. Now, this is the last of nine references in the Gospel of John where we find this idea of the hour or the time. It's the idea used in the Gospels, all the Gospels, for this time that is the time of Jesus' ultimate glorification, his glorification, which would take place through all the events associated with the end of his earthly ministry. His arrest that was about to happen in the garden, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, and his final ascension back to heaven. All of that is the hour. Now, several times in John's gospel, when we came across this, it said something like this, the hour had not come. And that was why Jesus' enemies weren't able to really get a hold of him yet. But now here Jesus is, somewhere in that brook, that valley, And he declares, now it's come. This was a very important moment in God's eternal plans. Those plans that were made in the eternal mind of the Godhead in eternity past. Very important moment. That hour, that time had come. Now throughout the Old Testament, and then even during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, God's plan, his divine plan of redemption, what we could call redemptive history, was just always gradually unfolding. But now it's it's there. Now this plan, this great drama was about to reach its climax. The eternal son in the form of the perfect God-man was going to offer himself up as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And that was something that was told all along the way in the Old Testament, gradually unfolding. You can go all the way back to Genesis, the first hint at it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It predicted it. God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your seed and her seed, he, in other words, the one who was the 
the culmination of her seed, the Messiah, he will bruise you on the head, you will bruise him on the heel. Acknowledging that Satan was going to be Jesus' great enemy, our great enemy, all through time. But the most he could do would be to bruise the son on the heel. The son would be victorious. That was going to happen through the triumph of Christ on on the cross. That's why Hebrews 2 verse 14 says this, Through death he will render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. That was all part of God's plan, been gradually unfolding through the centuries after century after century now. The hour's there. This was the time for everything said in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant to come to pass. All those verses about the the Messiah, the, the one who would be pierced. Isaiah 53, verse 5, despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 5, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's time for that. All those sacrifices, not just the Day of Atonement, not just the high priest going into the Holy of Holies and and offering the blood of the sacrificial animal that one day, but all the other days, all that blood shed, to provide some sort of temporary and just ceremonial cleansing for the people so they could go on about their lives of serving God. It never really atoned for their sin. No, it's because all those sacrifices were pointing to this one. And the time had come for that one. All of this was about to be accomplished. The hour had come for it to be accomplished. So there Jesus was leading this little group of 11 fearful and discouraged disciples through that valley and up the slopes of the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane with that hour, all of that, facing him, and he knew about all of it. And yet, though he knew about all of that, he knew about the victory that was to come. He knew about the resurrection and the ascension, aware of all that, He stops, and he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he prayed. My point is, that's what makes this chapter so profound. That's what makes this prayer so profound. It was prayed at the very hinge of history, you could say. It's interesting that he didn't, knowing all this, just sort of have this attitude of resignation, you know, just a a fatalistic approach. No, it was the occasion for prayer. Well, we're going to look at it, these five verses, and we're going to find today and next week that in these five verses, there are these two important confirmations related to Jesus' time on earth. We're going to look at one today and one next Sunday, two important confirmations that come out in this prayer. Here's the first one. Jesus confirmed his mission. Jesus confirmed his mission. Now, this is significant, that when it came to praying for himself, but a lot of things he could pray for, there's really just one request, one petition. It's a request that as we look at it, we'll see it confirms the mission that Jesus had come to earth to fulfill. Verse 1, glorify your son. Now, that verb To glorify means, on one hand, it it can mean to give praise to someone or something. It can mean to honor something or someone. That nuance is included here. 
we're certainly aware of the fact that Jesus deserves our prayer. We're aware of the fact that even though he would leave the earth through this shameful crucifixion, all of that would become the reason that those who come to know him as Lord and Savior and have their sins forgiven look back and praise him for it. That's what we do here. We seek to honor Christ in our singing and our preaching. But in this context, the primary meaning of glorify is something beyond that, just the normal idea of giving praise to or honor to. It carries the meaning here to clothe in splendor. To clothe in splendor. Put it in other words, to cause to be excellent or to cause to be majestic. To clothe with majestic, excellent splendor. Which means what Jesus is praying for here is the opposite of what he had already experienced by being humbled or brought to humiliation. That's what we find articulated in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Let me read those familiar words to us. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. The Son, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God in eternity past, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or or held onto and gripped, but emptied himself. Not that he stopped being God, but he emptied himself of, of the glory of that and the enjoyment of the glory of that and the prerogatives that go with all that. He emptied himself and took upon the form of the bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even this shameful, disgraceful death on a cross. That's how far the humbling of Christ went. So in essence, now the Son is petitioning the Father to reverse all that. Reverse the self-emptying that happened in the incarnation. Restore him now to what he had before. Restore him to the splendor. Uh, Restore him to the, the majesty that he shared with the Father before time began. And that is exactly what the Father did. He used even the events of the arrest and the torture and the crucifixion, even that he used to glorify the Son. So on one hand, Jesus knew that it was time for that to be glorified, yet even though he knows that's going to happen, he still prays for it to happen. You could summarize it this way. Jesus knew that this was God's appointed hour for God's will to be done, so he prays for God's will to be done. He prays that later on in the garden too, right? He makes his request known, but then he says, but your will be done. Listen, this is an interesting side point. There are those people that certainly don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It scares them, and one of their complaints is, well, God's sovereignty means we have no responsibility. It means there's no even reason to pray. Listen, the biblical view is an emphasis on God's sovereignty is not an impediment to prayer at all. It's actually an incentive to prayer. And that was true for the son. He knows all things of what's going to take place. So he prays that those things would take place. Yet as wonderful as that was for him personally, to be glorified through the crisis that was coming, to have the the humiliation wiped away and to be restored to the splendor, still 
That's not actually what Jesus desired the most. His ultimate desire and what gets to the heart of his mission is what he says next, that the Father be glorified. Glorify your, me, the Son, so that the Son may glorify you. This is what Jesus was focused on most as he faced his own moment of trial and crisis, God's glory. That is the chief end of all his saving work. So make that personal. That's the chief end of our salvation. It's the glory of God the Father. It certainly benefits us, but that's not the main point. It's the glory of God. God was clothed in splendor, as it were, when he brought his son to experience the the death on the cross. God was glorified, clothed in splendor, when he exalted the son. Because all of that put on display God's holiness. It put on display God's justice, his wrath, his love, his grace, his mercy. So, Jesus was praying that the Father would enable him to fulfill his mission. This confirms what his mission was. His mission was to bring glory to the Father through every moment of his own obedience, even obedience unto death. And as I said, this was his consuming passion all throughout his ministry. Submitting to the Father, obeying the Father, doing the Father's will, submitting to the Father in everything. Even at the moment of the trial, he viewed all of this from an eternal perspective. All of it was necessary to accomplish his mission on earth. So it's fitting that his prayer now would emphasize the very things that characterized his earthly ministry. And that's the point. Knowing the will of God didn't cause him to fatalistically forgo praying. On the contrary, it prompted him to ask the Father to do what he said he would do. Jesus confirmed his mission here, even in his prayer. So what's happening here in this prayer? We're listening in. We're listening in to the most profound of conversations ever. Just like those original disciples stood there and listened to this. We're listening to the divine Son communicating with the Father. And in that sense, it is unique. And in that sense, it's unrepeatable. And yet, there are some practical implications for us and lessons we can learn. So let's walk through those real quickly. Just some lessons in this. Even in this much. More prayer to come. But here's some lessons for us. Here's lesson number one. I couldn't help but think about this as I studied even this short portion for today. Lesson number one, it teaches us when to pray. It teaches us when to pray. Jesus was facing the biggest trial of his earthly life. We don't face that exact trial, but we certainly face trials. We face times of crises. And it's those times that really end up being what squeezes us so that what comes out of us is who we really are. So how do we respond when trouble comes? What what concerns are, are dominating our thoughts? Let's learn from Jesus. His thoughts were dominated by the trial that was calm, and in that situation he prayed. How much more you and I need to pray when facing the many challenges of life? So lesson number one, it teaches us when to pray. Lesson two, it teaches us how to pray. 
I know we have the disciples' prayer that teaches us how to pray, but even, even observing Jesus praying teaches us how to pray. For example, even from this little bit today, we can learn this. We should keep a sense of reverence during our prayers, just like Jesus did. Keep a sense of reverence in your prayer. Now, in lifting up his eyes, he exhibited humility, so we should do the same. But I'm not talking about we need to pray always looking up. That's not the point. Jesus didn't always pray that way. But at least in our hearts and in our words, we need to maintain this sense of reverence, this attitude of reverence, as we acknowledge in our prayer God's holiness, as we acknowledge His authority, as we acknowledge our dependence on Him. That's a humble sense of reverence in our prayer should always be there. He's not our pal. He's God. Along with that, I think we need to keep a sense of submission during our prayers. Make sure that sense is there too, sense of submission. Jesus' request was directed to the fulfillment of God's will, God's redemptive will, God's glory. And that, I'd have to say, is a contrast to to much of my praying when I'm not thinking rightly. Our prayers tend to be very much focused just on ourselves or on our own perceived needs, or our fears, or our burdens, our concerns, our wants. And don't get me wrong in that. Scripture does teach us that we ought to give every one of those to the Lord in prayer. We ought to give our burdens, our needs, and our concerns to Him. But as we do that, we must not forget that life does not revolve around us. We give our request, but we do it with this greater desire for the Lord's sovereign will and plans to be fulfilled in our lives, in the lives of our children, in the life of our church, in the world. I mean, let's just remember again how we were saved in the first place. I already said it, that's the chief end of our salvation, is God's glory. So if we forget that, we we lose the, the, the greatness of the gospel because of just a focus on self. And when that happens... The evidence of that is we become very discontented in the times of suffering and trials because we see them as setbacks. How different this idea is from the heart and mind of Christ. What he was about to experience was not a setback. I mean, he was prepared to step across the Kidron Brook there and take up his cross. And in his prayer, the primary benefit of the salvation he was about to accomplish was for God's glory. So let's maintain that mindset, that sense of reverence and that sense of submission to his will. And I'm just telling you, that submissive attitude changes everything about our lives. We no longer face trials as simply setbacks. We admit how difficult they are, but there's more going on. We no longer even come to church just because we think it's something that will benefit us and we'll get something out of it. I hope we do. I hope we are benefited. But we don't make our decision whether to go to church or not. You know, I wonder if I'll get something out of it today. I don't know. Maybe I won't, so I'll stay home. No, we, we don't even insist on our own preferences in the body of Christ, but we, we come with this mindset of just thinking, how can we honor God? How can we grow in His grace? It's all about Him not us. 
Our trials are, are not just tragedies. They're, they're opportunities to show forth the glory of God in our lives. So I'm just saying this teaches us how to pray. Pray with a sense of reverence. Pray with a sense of, of submission. I think we could also say this. Pray with a sense of intimacy. He prayed to his father. He taught his disciples to pray to his father. I think that's how we should pray. We should address our prayers that way. He told us to do it, so why don't? Why shouldn't we? I'm not saying it's wrong to address the Lord in a different way, to say, oh God, you are the greatest God, the majestic God, the creator of the universe and sustainer of all things, oh mighty God. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that when Jesus prayed, he called him Father. I think it's a reminder to us that the only reason we're able to do that, to go to the God who's created all things and sustains all things, the transcendent God, is because of Christ who forgave us of, who's forgiven us of our sins because of the cross. And therefore, we can go know God not just as a transcendent God. We can know God in his eminence. We know him not just as a judge, but we know him as Father. I think it's actually important that we do pray to our Father. Every time you say that, it's a reminder to you that without Christ, you're nothing. So I think it teaches us how to pray. Third, it teaches us what to pray. It teaches us what to pray. In some ways, I've already answered that, but to press on that a little more, in praying for what the triune God had already determined to do, I'll tell you what, that's the same thing as doing. It's the same thing as praying truth. Jesus prayed truth. That was the content of his prayer. And we can do the same thing in one important way. We can express biblical thinking in our prayers, for it's in Scripture that God has revealed truth to us. We are not a member of the Godhead. We don't have the eternal degree, decrees in our own minds. But we know all that God wants us to know in his word. So to say it differently, Jesus asked God to perform the very things God had promised to do, and we can pray that. We can pray what Scripture says are the priorities of God. Even as you pray for yourself and you pray for your children and you pray for this church and you pray for the world, let's pray what the priorities of God are. And we find those in Scripture. So that tells us that we need to know what Scripture says. We need to know its doctrines. We need to know its promises. So that when we pray, our prayers are just influenced by that. Biblical truth. We need to be like John Bunyan. Some of you have heard the famous quote that Charles by Charles Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon. as a different guy, Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said this about John Bunyan. This man, meaning Bunyan, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. May we be so saturated with biblical truth that it just comes out in the, in the things we pray for, for ourselves and for others. And lastly, lesson four, I think it teaches us who can pray. Who can pray? Ultimately, the one who can pray to the Father is the one who knows him that way. And we can have an intimate relationship with God the Father only one way. Anyone who believes in him is granted the same spiritual intimacy with God that Jesus enjoyed, but only that one who comes to Christ. So that brings us back to what I said about the Holy of Holies in the introduction. 
Remember what I said? The significance of the Holy of Holies to Christians is found in the fact of what it represents, the presence of God, but the significance is illustrated for us in what happened when Christ was crucified. You find this in Matthew 27, that when Jesus died, an amazing thing happened. Matthew 27 tells us that at that moment, that veil, that curtain in the temple that the high priest had to push aside all the time once a year, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It was a supernatural event done by the power of God to make a very specific point that because of the death of Christ on the cross, man no longer had to be separated from God. We can know him. Christ's body was torn, as it were, on the cross, just as that veil was torn in the temple. And now we have access to God through Christ. We can know him as Father and therefore pray to him. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, meaning his death. So as a result of Christ, we can have intimacy with God, Romans 5, verse 1 says we have peace with God. Romans 5, 11 says we're reconciled to God. Romans 8, 15 says we've been adopted by God, and so we literally cry out in our souls, Abba, Father. Ephesians 2, 18 says we have access in one spirit to the Father. Listen, this prayer reminds us who can pray. It's those who know him as their Father. That's the prayer he hears. And you know him by, as Father by coming to Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior today, then come to him in humble repentance and faith, trusting in him alone to be forgiven of your sin, and then you too can call God Father. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so glad to be able to call you that. We are so grateful for the sending of your son to fulfill his mission, a mission to give his life on the cross, to pay the debt of the sins of your people, so that ultimately you would be glorified. Father, we thank you for that. And Father, I thank you that by your spirit, you open the hard hearts of people so that they're humbled, so they can see the glory of Christ and come to him in humble, repentant faith and be saved. Father, I pray that we would just remember these things as we go about our daily lives. Remember the significance of prayer and what we're really doing in prayer, aligning ourselves even with the will of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.